So awesome. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, do your thing this morning. We are open. We're open, Holy Spirit, for you to come and shift and move things and reveal things. And though that might be scary, though that might be a little bit uh, a freaky, God, we just, we just open up our hearts to you because more than the fear of what it is to change, there is the fear of staying the same. And we don't want that, God. We don't want to be the same. We want to be renewed and new and new. So we dare to open up our hearts before you this morning. Come and speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, you can praise God. Oh, oh gosh. Uh, happy Anzac weekend all. Is, was anyone here up and at the dawn parade? No? Oh, come on. Look, I had every intention. I did. I had every intention of going. Um, I was staying at the, uh, the, the Novotel this weekend, and, uh, and Pastor Jordan and Chrissy were good enough to show me, before they dropped me off on Friday night, uh, the walk down to where the thousands of people were going to be. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm going to do that. So, uh, but I woke up just a little bit late, just a little and I thought, look, if I get up now and if I start the walk down, I'm probably going to be standing behind thousands of people watching a live feed on a screen that I could probably just watch inside the hotel. So I thought, I'm just, I'm just going to stay in the hotel. <laughs> now, that was my justification. And um, look, eventually, eventually I got up out of bed and I made my way, walked down to Cuba Street. Yeah. And got a coffee, because I have to have a coffee from Cuba Street when I'm in Wellington. Uh, so I walked down, I got a coffee, and then after that I walked um, to Te Papa. Because they had the, uh, the Gallipoli exhibition, we had a workshop, right? It was on the news, and it looked amazing. And so I walked down, and uh, I walked in, and there were lines of people. And I said to the lady, um, how long is that wait going to be? Because lunch is in like two hours. And she says, oh, it's probably going to be an hour and a half. So people were lining an hour and a half just to walk in. And I said, wow. And she said, yeah, people had been lining up from 7 o'clock in the morning when the museum was opening, especially early. And she said, this morning at 7 o'clock, 150 people were waiting outside to go in and see the exhibit. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I said, how long is this exhibit going to be here? And she says, four years. I said, I'll come back later. I'll come. Wellington's not going anywhere. I'm going to come back later. And so um, I, I just took a, a walk around the museum. I thought, while I'm here, I may as well check out some of the other uh, permanent exhibitions. And I came across one of them. And uh, as I, I walked in, it was just talking about, uh, you know, New Zealand history and uh, you know, the, the time when New Zealand was colonized, and there was a story of a female chief, uh, one of the few female chiefs uh, to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, so, yeah, she was a bit of a boss. And I was like, I like boss ladies. I like, I like, I'm going to read about her. So I started reading about this female chief, one of the very few to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. And, uh, it says that she was so intelligent, she was intimidating. I know, what? Her name was uh, Terangi Topeora. 
And uh, she was so intelligent. Sister was intimidating. But they said that the power and the authority of her leadership lay in her ability to write and sing songs. So she was one who, who was extremely intelligent. She was also one who had a standing when it came to, to Māori warfare and the land wars and battle. She was one that people would consult. But the authority in her came from her ability to write songs and sing them. And people would freak out when she would sing. What, she, would, she would write love songs. Oh, lovely. And then she would write what they called cursing songs. <laughs> Who thinks they need to sing some cursing songs sometimes? Come on, when life gets just a little bit annoying. When things are just a little bit frustrating. I just want to sing a cursing song. So she writes, literally, it's called a cursing song. But when she would write and sing these songs, she was writing out of a frustration. She was writing because she would see things that are happening. And she would know that there would be a whole generation that is going to grow up and be robbed of their heritage, robbed of their inheritance. And it would frustrate her. So as well as going into battle, she would sing songs. And it is said of her songs that they were so powerful that at the same time that they would threaten the enemy, she would incite to action the warriors of her tribe. At the same time that she would release a song, it would threaten and scare any enemy in the vicinity. And at the same time, the men and the women around her would hear the call of frustration, would hear that something's not right, and they would run to stand at arm and begin to fight. And we want to come in on a Sunday morning and sing a pretty melody. We want to come in in the morning and be like, this is the day you that's not what we're doing. <laughs> Come on, what we are doing, we're saying, this is the day, enemy. This is the day of your demise. This is the day that you stop robbing me of my inheritance. This is the day God has made, and I will rejoice. Come on, we sing those praise songs. I know that you are with me, God, I know that you are with me, and because of that, come on, people, let's gather together, let's stand up, let's declare the kingship of our God, and let's go for it. Now I'm excited about that. Makes me sing songs differently. Anyway, so uh, one of the things that God has, uh, obviously, this was highlighted to me, because I'm in a little bit of a space where I'm just a little bit angry. Just a little, can you tell? <laughs> just a little bit frustrated. <laughs> just a little bit annoyed at what's going on. Just annoyed that there's a generation of people who are lost and don't know Jesus. But also, I am deeply annoyed. I am deeply frustrated that there is a generation of Christians 
who are also being robbed. They are being robbed of real relationship with God, the kind that would cause one to live beyond themselves. Anyway, uh, so I've been kind of living my life as, as you do, and uh, this year it's, it's been kind of not really comfortable for me because I've come to realize that most of my Christian journey, I've been a wee bit of a princess, <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, most of my Christian walk, God's just kind of given me stuff. God's just, uh, you know, I might throw a little tantrum here or there, uh, you know, shoot up a quick prayer. And before I know it, God will have answered my prayer and said, come on, here, here it is, Esther. God has given me blessing. God has given me favor. God has given me breakthrough so easily. This year, not so much. Not so much this year. And uh, it's been quite a journey. But one of the things that God has said to me at the beginning of the year is he said to me, Esther, if you want it, you got to learn how to fight for it. At the moment, you don't know how. <laughs> at the moment, you don't know how to fight for it. At the moment, you've been sitting in this comfortable, conventional kind of Christianity where all you do is stamp your feet and cry a few times, and then you call that faith. And so I've been challenged by God. No, no. Yeah, you can stamp your feet. You can cry, but you've got to engage faith. You've got to bring some evidence and some substance behind what you say you believe, Esther, not you, just me. And, uh, and so it's been quite a journey for me this year because everything that I now step into, I need to earn in my battle. Every bit of ground that I take, it's something that I have put my life down for quite literally. And anyway, I quite like that because, uh, you know, uh, just, just quickly in, in, in Exodus, the old Israelites, <sighs> this, is, this is funny because in my Bible in Exodus 13, the, the subtitle sub, uh, there is uh, Israel's Wilderness Detour. A detour. God, you want to call 40 years a detour? Are you kidding me? That ain't a detour. That's a pit stop camp. Like, I'm stopping and I'm camping out here in the dead. That's not a detour. And I'm freaking Israel's wilderness detour. It says this in verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that's the shortest route. God's been giving me the shortest route most of the time. And uh, it says this, God said, if the people are faced with battle, they might change their minds and just run straight back to Egypt. If the people are faced with battle on the way to their promise of freedom, if the people are faced with battle on their way to the promise of full healing and restoration for their family, if you are faced with battle, unless you know how to fight, you're not going to be able to take hold of your promise fully. And so I'm reading that. I'm like, oh, okay, God, here we go. Please don't let it take 40 years, please. 
please, I won't take 40 years in a wilderness. And if you are here this morning and you feel like you may be in a little bit of a wilderness, good. Good. If you feel like maybe your faith and your journey with God, maybe it's run dry a little bit. Maybe it's hard. Maybe it's, it's just, I, I, I just don't know where I'm going. I can't see. I just feel like I'm going around in circles. Good. Good. Because a loving and a faithful God would provide a wilderness for all that needs to die, to die. A loving and a faithful God would provide a wilderness, in the Israelites' case, so that doubt wouldn't be able to live in the promise. There was a whole generation of doubt that had to die 40 years in that wilderness because that doubt cannot live in the promise. That doubt cannot live, exist. Doubt cannot coincide with faith. So there's a wilderness in your life. Celebrate. Oh, God is getting rid of some things. You know, the Bible says that, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes we just want to rebuke our flesh. Naughty Christian. Naughty Christian who didn't do your devotions this morning. Naughty. Oh, come on, pull yourself into like, no, the Bible says rebuke the enemy. You know what the Bible says about your flesh? Kill it. <laughs> Put it to death. <laughs> Put your flesh to death. <laughs> Rebuke the enemy, but your flesh, it needs to die. How good is God that he just provides a wilderness so your flesh can die? How good is he? Oh, he's so good. Y'all don't believe me. Some of you are too scared to. You're like, oh, I don't know if I like what you're saying. Okay. I hope you will. Anyway. The thing is about a wilderness is, uh, is uh, I, I, I know wilderness. The, the thing is about it, especially if you're a Christian, is if you are walking in a wilderness, there's this thing that exists in wilderness, and it's called shame. And it's, uh, it is super dangerous. And the thing with shame is that no one wants to talk about it. But the more that you don't talk about it, the more that it happens. Right? And so we, we kind of walk in this wilderness, but we don't want to tell anyone that we're walking in this wilderness because people might think we're walking in a wilderness. And then what does that mean about my relationship with God? Oh, my gosh. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to have it all together. I go to church every Sunday. I'm not supposed to struggle with these things. I'm a, I'm a leader. I know, I'm a leader. I, I stand on stage and I preach. No, I'm not supposed to struggle with those things. But it is this wilderness that God lovingly provided for me last year. <laughs> that was incredibly uncomfortable. But uh, I'm just going to land here in Mark chapter, oh, sorry, not Mark. Uh, Luke. Go the children. 
uh, Luke chapter 11. And uh, this is when Jesus is teaching the disciples about prayer. And as he's teaching them about prayer, he goes through uh, the, you know, the, the, the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And then in verse 5, it says, Then teaching them more about prayer, Jesus uses the story. <laughs> this story is hilarious. So, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight. Let's pause. There's only one reason why you go to a friend's house at midnight. Something is really wrong. Something has gone wrong, and you want the cover of the deepest part of the night to hide you. And then you run. You run. I pray that you don't run and hide yourself somewhere. I pray you run to your friend's house. So the story is already hilarious, eh? Just imagine you at midnight. What, you know, I, I got a phone call once when I was like 14 at midnight. And uh, I missed the phone call. And then this is, I had my brick Alcatel phone. <laughs> And, uh, and then I woke up and I saw I'd missed a call, so I called back. And it was one of the girls in church. Her name was Doris. I didn't even really know her. And I said, why did you call me? She's like, oh, look, I was just up and I was bored. And I just wanted to see who my real friends were. So I thought, I just call people at midnight because that usually means something's incredibly wrong. And so, Esther, you must be one of my real friends. I said to her, uh, not anymore. <laughs> I said, no, that's weird. I just don't have, don't call me again. It's just weird. Anyway, anyway so when something, when, when something goes on at midnight, something is wrong. And it says, uh, he wants to borrow three loaves of bread. Who knows? That is not the issue. The issue was not three loaves of bread. Because you don't go to someone's house in the middle of the night asking for help because you don't have three loaves of bread. You don't sit down with Pastor Chrissy or Jordan and say, I just need three loaves of bread. Isn't that what we do sometimes as Christians? No, look, I just need three loaves of bread and I'll be fine. But he goes on and says, uh, you say to him, look, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I've got nothing for him to eat. Ah. So I'm here, and there's someone else who's coming to my house, and they're about to see that I have nothing. A friend of mine has come in unexpectedly, and I didn't have time to clean things up and, and, and make things look good, and they're about to see my shame. They're about to see it, and I am freaking out. Oh, you don't need three loaves of bread. <laughs> uh, but, you, but you need help. <laughs> right? Now we can kind of say, oh, okay, there's, there's something just a little bit more going on here. And then, so this is what you're saying, and suppose your friend calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. I can imagine that's what Butsy would do. It's the middle of the night. Don't bother me. And he says, 
The door is locked for the night. My family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. Verse 8, but I tell you this, Jesus says, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. There are some things that we just won't get from God purely because of our relationship with Him. There are some things that require a shameless persistence before they are granted. Oh no, this is good. I hope you are being challenged. There are some things that just because of your relationship with God, that God's like, oh, that's fantastic. Like God is saying to me, that's great, Esther. You are my daughter and I love you. But unless you can have a shameless persistence in you, you ain't getting it. The thing with shame is that it's different from guilt. Guilt is attached to something I have done. Shame is attached to who I am. I can be guilty of making a mistake. And the shame says, I am the mistake. God doesn't say a guiltless persistence, but a shameless one. Shame is about you and how you see yourself. Shame is about you and what you, what we have chosen to identify as part of myself. So there are two things that I want to talk about this morning. Shameless persistence. Because sometimes we can have a persistence that's so attached to shame. It looks the same. It looks and sounds exactly the same, but it is inherently different. Sometimes we can have a shameful persistence. God, I don't want people to see all of this mess. So please, please, please fix it. God, I don't. I'm so afraid that if people see this mess, that they're just going to run a mile from me. But what does that say about how we see ourselves? It says that we see ourselves as who we are because of what we do, rather than who we are because of who he is to us. And it is something I, I had to learn. Uh, last year was, was probably one of the hardest years um, that I had to walk through because uh, just before the middle of the year, God had asked me to take a step of obedience that made no sense to me. And when I made that step of obedience, I do that, and I do that quickly and without thinking, because I know me, if I have too much time to think, I'm going to think myself out of obedience. And so I just decided, I'm just going to follow what God says. And uh, what had happened was, I had felt like, God had taken back his promise from me. I felt like God said, hey Esther, 
here's a bit of your inheritance. Just kidding. I was just joking. You can't have that. You're not going to have that. And I didn't blame God for that. Immediately, because of my shame of the situation, I immediately decided that God saw something so wrong in me that he had to take it away because I didn't deserve it. It took me a matter of weeks to get over just not living in that space anymore. But it took so much longer to deal with the shame of it. So much longer. Oh, preacher Esther should have this sorted. Oh, Christian Esther should have this sorted. But at the very core of it, I couldn't even look at God because I was so ashamed. And I remember last year in about October, I remember being at our our national conference and I can't even remember who was preaching. Pastor Steve Graham was preaching. I don't remember what he said, but he made it, he asked for um, that we would respond in the space of if there was fear or shame but I'm preacher Esther. And everyone in this room are all leaders and they know me. I'm the one on revolution tour. I'm the one that roars and is loud and is strong. I can't respond to this. What will they think of me? I can't. And this has never happened to me before. I'm not ooky spooky at all. Uh, I run from ooky spooky people. Uh, but, <laughs> but just in that moment, before I knew it, my left leg had just stepped forward out of my place of standing. And again, as usual, before I could think about anything, I'll just go with it, Esther. <laughs> so I'm like, it doesn't make, just go with it, just go with it. And so I went down the front and I stood there. And as soon as I closed my eyes, I start crying. I don't know why I'm crying. I took tissues down with me because I knew it was going to happen. I stuck one tissue here and one tissue here so my makeup wouldn't run. And it was just, it was ugly cry. I don't know what was going on. After that session, I got one of my leaders straight away. And I said, I don't know what's happening. But something is wrong. I don't, I find it really hard to get up in the morning. I was probably bordering a little bit on depression. I can't even get up in the morning. It takes every bit of strength for me to just get up. Something is wrong. So we started talking, talking, talking. And then uh, finally, she says to me, Esther, you are spending time with God? I was like, yeah. (laughs) I was just spending time in my pity and labeling it God. I wasn't. And then, uh, and then she says, when you spend time with God and you pray, what is the first thing to come out of your mouth? And then I, I have this moment because the first thing that would come out of my mouth was, I'm so sorry that I'm a terrible Christian, God. I'm so sorry that I can't get it together. I'm so sorry that I'm so weak. I'm so sorry that I'm so vulnerable. I'm so sorry that I just keep failing you. 
And my leader says, that's shame. That's shame. And you've been hiding. And the more you hide, the more it grows. And she said, you just got to bring that before God. You need to show him your shame. You need to show him. And a second Second Corinthians 12, 8 to 10 says, Oh, Chrissy, it's going to happen. <laughs> we all know what happened last time, right? Praise Jesus. But he says to me, my grace is enough for you. My strength and power are made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will more gladly glorify in my weaknesses and my infirmities that the strength and power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, the fight I'm talking about is not a fight to be stronger. Rather, it is a fight to be incredibly weak. (laughs) To be unashamedly weak before my God. And it takes humility. Do you know the very meaning of humility, dictionary meaning? One of them is to destroy the independence of something. To humble yourself before God is to destroy your own independence of Him. And we only want to be independent of God when there is something to be ashamed of. When there's something we want to hide, we don't want people to see. To have shame is to cover something up ourselves. In this story in Luke, we see that there was shame. There was the potential for shame to be exposed in this place. But he ran to his friend's house And there was just something about this friend that meant that shame didn't exist there. It existed elsewhere. But with this one friend, shame didn't exist. With this one friend, he was able to stand and knock and yell and say, I need help. And the friend even yelled back, I'm too tired. And he says, there's, there's, there's no shame that exists there so much so that even when he gets rejected once, the brother knocks even louder. There is just one space, one friend where shame doesn't exist. It has no bearing. It has no level of play in this relationship. With this one friend, shame does not exist. Which means when we do things, when we fall and we will, we can 
run to our friend where shame doesn't exist. And this is where faith lives, where we can be persistent in what we ask of God because we're not coming to Him with shame. We are unashamed. I glory in my weaknesses and my infirmities, God. Because in that space, I know if I give it to you, you eliminate shame. I know if I give it to you, God, it doesn't exist here. You took it all so I can boldly and courageously ask, even though I am messed up. (laughs) And let's be honest, we all messed up. But it's not about you fixing it yourself. can't. But we come before God with this shameless persistence that says, I'm going to keep on asking. I will keep on seeking and God, I will keep on knocking. This friend in the Bible, he runs, well, you run in the cover of midnight. And the thing is, if you're going to run to that shameless space, you do need the cover of something. (laughs) But it is not the cover of midnight to cloak you. It is the cover of God's grace. You need to run and hide under that cover. In Jesus' name. You know, uh, I guess it's because we're friends. I just wanted to share my heart this morning. But there is a fight that we need to fight. And it is one that says, I am shameless before God. It is one that says, look, I'm, and hear me, I'm strong enough to be weak. You hear me? I'm strong enough to be weak. People who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will heal their land and I will heal their land. There is healing this morning where shame exists. And this morning, I just want to pray for people where you have an area of shame. Look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to come down the